0: I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Mahatma Gandhi. Except that it seems like Gandhi didn't actually say that. So let's try this one instead. Today I rebel against Orthodox Christianity. As I'm convinced it has distorted the message of Jesus. He was an Asiatic whose message was delivered through many media. And when it had the backing of a Roman emperor, it became an imperialist faith as it remains to this day. Mahatma Gandhi Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the podcast that finds anarchism all around us in our everyday lives. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. Today's episode is Jesus of Nazareth. I'm intentionally not calling this one Jesus Christ. Jesus was his name, or Yeshua, or Joshua. These are all the same names, so Joshua in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament have the same name. It gets translated differently to make sure you don't get confused. Christ, on the other hand, is a title. It's often translated as Messiah, Chosen One, Savior, Son of God, etc. Jesus Christ means Jesus, the one who has come to save us all. And Paul, writing after Jesus' death, is the primary user of this word Christ in the Bible. He uses Christ interchangeably and constantly. Jesus of Nazareth is what they mostly called him in the Gospels. He's Jesus from Nazareth. Now, you might be wondering, depending on how well you know the story, wasn't he born in Bethlehem? Well, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was from Nazareth. Except he definitely wasn't born in Bethlehem. It's in the Bible, but it didn't happen. Bethlehem was where David was born. David, the greatest king of Israel. And there was supposed to be a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ of the house of David, according to certain scriptures, especially the book of Micah. So if there's going to be a Christ, and you've got this guy Jesus, who you want to be the Christ, he needs to be from Bethlehem. But he's not from Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth. So what do we do? We make up a story about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Ta-da! Jesus can be the Messiah, even though the whole story is completely made up. And this Messiah, this Christ, isn't anarchist. In fact, there's a good argument to be made that Christianity, especially as Roman Catholicism, is among the least, if not the least, anarchist institutions in Western culture. Hence, Gandhi's quote from the beginning, that Jesus was an Asiatic, and Gandhi really means a conservative anarchist, who got taken by the Roman Empire. Obviously, the idea that Roman Catholicism is not anarchist is overblown because Roman Catholicism is over a thousand years old and incredibly complicated. It seems to me that Francis of Assisi is anarchist. I'm working on an episode about him. Dorothy Day is an important Catholic anarchist of the 20th century. I'd love to have an episode about her. I haven't done the research yet on that one. But in the grand sweep of things, Roman Catholicism is pretty un-anarchist. So the first thing we've got to do if we want our anarchist Jesus of Nazareth, if we've got to go back 2,000 years ago and find the anarcho-communist Jesus underneath the Roman Catholic trappings, or even the Christian trappings. Gandhi argues that Christianity itself is against Jesus and against anarchism. And boy, oh boy, are there a lot of trappings. Bart Ehrman has made a career out of writing accessible books for the lay reader that show how little we actually know about this historical Jesus and how much we do know about the people who get between us and that historical Jesus, even though we don't normally talk about those people. The Bible has been interpreted nonstop since it was written, but even before that interpretation, well, it had to get written. Here's Ehrman. Many Christians today may think that the canon of the New Testament simply appeared on the scene one day, soon after the death of Jesus, but nothing could be farther from the truth. As it turns out, we are able to pinpoint the first time that any Christian of record listed the 27 books of our New Testament as the books of the New Testament, neither more nor fewer. Surprising as it may seem, this Christian was writing in the second half of the fourth century, nearly 300 years after the books of the New Testament had themselves been written. The author was the powerful Bishop of Alexandria named Athanasius, in the year 367 CE. And that's from Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus. So Jesus was born roughly, you know, year one or so AD, Anno Domini, year of our Lord, aka Jesus. So we're close to 400 years, more than 350 years before we get the New Testament. So if you want an anarchist Jesus, you can find one. You can find any Jesus you want. You can even make the claim that Jesus never existed at all. That one's pretty tough based on our historical sources, but so much came between Jesus's life and the writings we have about him that his life is really up for grabs. Here's Ehrman again, writing about the texts that tell us about the life of Jesus. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals, or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later. And these copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. These copies differ from one another in so many places that we don't even know how many differences there are. Possibly it is easiest to put it in comparative terms. There are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. So, Jesus is up for grabs. There are infinite interpretations of Jesus. Who knows how many things are missing? But based on what we have, I want us to go find Jesus of Nazareth and show he's an anarchist on the next podcast. This one got too big and I had to split it in two. So here's my plan for today. The Romans killed Jesus of Nazareth, an anarchist, and then he was reborn as Jesus Christ, imperial figurehead. I would like to reverse the process. So today, let's kill Jesus Christ, the God of the great empire, and then once he's out of the way, we can go find Jesus of Nazareth, two weeks from now. And uh, I will also do a Q&A session in between those episodes, which I think will be fun. Please send me your comments on this episode uh, or <laughs> any previous work I've done, but especially uh, your thoughts on my uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ in favor of Jesus of Nazareth in this episode. That's uh, Podcast at gmail.com. Now I'm gonna to turn to a personal story. It's a personal story, and yet it's also a rite of passage that so many people experience. It famously happens in seminary. To me, it happened my first year as a college student in undergrad. I was hanging out in a dorm room first year that was drinking. I wasn't drinking, I wasn't drinking at the time because drinking is illegal. And although I knew Jesus hadn't forbidden drinking, I knew he had forbidden doing illegal things, And therefore, I wasn't drinking. You can see this is not an anarchist Jesus that I believed in. And one of the people who was in the room, we were hanging out, said, My parents lied to me. Satan is not in the Bible. I will never forget that phrasing. My parents lied to me. Satan is not in the Bible. I don't remember exactly what I said. But I said some version of... Oh yeah, I just learned that too. So if you grew up in a Christian church, you were probably taught about Satan. Satan is the adversary, the enemy. He is against Christianity. In fact, Gandhi says that Christianity is the spirit of Satan, not the spirit of Jesus. This is his critique of Christianity as it exists. Satan isn't really in the Bible. There's a few mentions to the adversary. And there's a few places where, you know, there are these figures who are opposed to God. Uh, The book of Job is an example. And Christian interpretation has sort of wound them all together and given us the story of Satan, the archenemy. But it is not in the Bible. It's not there. The guy who kicks all of evil off, all of sin off, is the serpent. He shows up right away. Adam, Eve, the serpent, the apple. It's just a serpent. And in fact, it's a just-so story. It's an explanation of how the serpent lost his legs. He was bad. God took his legs away. This is a story about a wily snake. The serpent is like the Loki of the biblical texts. But there's this tradition, this long-standing millennia-old tradition, that the serpent is Satan. So you're taught the serpent is Satan in Sunday school, and you just believe it. And when you learn that there's absolutely no evidence of this at all in the text, this is just stories that were made up later to explain things that don't make sense, it has a tendency to crush your belief in the authority figures who told you this stuff. Hence, my parents lied to me. The people who I believed about right and wrong were telling me these stories about Satan that aren't even true. Whether or not your parents know that the narrative of Satan is constructed, well, I guess that depends on your parents. And this whole Satan is not the serpent thing, people have known it for a long time. Lord Byron wrote a play about this called Cain in the early 19th century, and it pretty much got him banned from British society. And what got him banned from British society is he has Satan say in the play over and over again, I was not the serpent, that was just a snake, stop blaming me for that. But if the serpent is just a snake, the entire narrative of Jesus is wrong. And if the entire narrative of Jesus is wrong, then Christianity has been lying to you. And if Christianity has been lying to you, then society falls apart. So we have to ban Byron from society. 19th century Britain says, get that guy out of here. He goes and uh, tries to fight in a war, a war of independence for Greece and, you know, dies. But it just keeps happening. It happened to me and my friend in the early 21st century, and there's a lovely late 19th century novel, The Damnation of Theron Ware, in which it happens to a pastor. He's trying to, Theron Ware is the name of the pastor, he's trying to write this book about Abraham, and of course the Old Testament texts being older than the New Testament, are even more chaotic, are even more corrupted than the texts Ehrman was telling us about. Even though this guy's a pastor though, no one ever told him (laughs) that Satan was a made up story. He thinks it's all real. But he wants to write this book about Abraham, so he needs some texts, some interpretive texts, and he goes to talk to the local intellectuals, including a Catholic priest, Father Forbes, and is like, hey, can I have a book uh, on Abraham? And it takes Forbes a while to figure out that Theron Ware doesn't realize that Abraham is also made up. And this is what Forbes says when he figures it out. I feel that you are taking our friend Abraham too literally, Mr. Ware, Father Forbes said, in that gentle semblance of paternal tones which seemed to go so well with his gown. Modern research, you know, quite wipes him out of existence as an individual. The word Abram is merely an eponym. It means exalted father. Practically all the names in the Genesis chronologies are what we call eponymous. Abram is not a person at all. He is a tribe, a sept, a clan. In the same way, Shem is not intended for a man. It is the name of a great division of the human race. Heber is simply the throwing back into allegorical substance, so to speak, of the Hebrews. Heth of the Hittites, Ashur of Assyria. But this is something very new, this theory, isn't it, Queried Theron. The priest smiled and shook his head. Bless you, no, my dear sir, there is nothing new. Epicurus and Lucretius outlined the whole Darwinian theory more than 2,000 years ago. As for this eponym thing, why St. Augustine called attention to it 1,500 years ago. In his De Civita Dei, sorry, this is me, I don't know how to pronounce Latin, he expressly says of these genealogical names, Gentes non homines, that is, peoples, not persons. It was as obvious to him as much a commonplace of knowledge as it was to Ezekiel 800 years before him. It seems passing strange that we should not know it now then, commented Theron. I mean that everybody shouldn't know. Father Forbes gave a little purring chuckle. Ah, there we get upon contentious ground, he remarked. Why should everybody be supposed to know anything at all? What business is it of everybody's to know things? The earth was just as round in the days when people supposed it to be flat as it is now. So the truth remains always the truth, even though you give a charter to ten hundred thousand separate numbskulls to examine it by the light of their private judgment and report that it is as many different varieties of something else. But of course, that whole question of private judgment versus authority is no man's land for us. We were speaking of eponyms. They know. They all know. The priests... No, All of the people whose job it is to know things know that the Bible is made up. By the late 19th century they've known at least 70 years, if not more like 100. But Forbes also says, this is the Roman Catholic thing, you can't let the numbskulls know. The truth is always true. The earth is always round. Jesus is always the Christ. But if you let people look at it, they will make mistakes. One of those mistakes they might make is believing that Jesus is an anarcho-communist, not the Christ. That's anarchy. And you can't have that. So what's your job? Your job is just to listen to what the priests and the scholars say. They will use the correct judgment as opposed to you using your stupid private light. They will use the big light of truth, which you cannot access. Father Forbes, Catholic priest, he's on the side of authority. He knows the serpent isn't really Satan. He knows Abraham wasn't a real person. But why would he tell the people? They would just get it wrong. They don't understand the deeper, more important truth. So it's their job, the numbskulls, to be quiet and listen, well, the father, Father Forbes, tells them the truth about Christ. Okay, so since Paul, or Augustine, or Athanasius, or the Emperor Constantine, or whoever, Christ has been this anti-anarchist figure. It all fits together, Old Testament, New Testament, Greek philosophy, we'll get to it in a second, And whatever powerful government you want, every powerful government in the Western world, more or less every powerful government in the Western world after Constantine puts Christ in this position as the authority figure who you can't understand, but who authorizes the hierarchical system. It doesn't matter who the person is. Is it Constantine? Is it Charlemagne? Is it Julius II, who was the pope who had the Sistine Chapel painted? And he named himself Julius after Julius Caesar. He kind of cut out the middleman. He said, I am the knower and also the ruler, much like Plato. get to that in a second. Kaiser Wilhelm, Tsar Nicholas, Kaiser and Tsar. These are just words for Caesar. And why are they in charge? Because Jesus says they are. Jesus isn't around. So why don't you go ask your local priest? He will confirm that you should listen to Caesar. You know how I love my Mike Duncan. So here's Mike Duncan on Constantine. Uh, Duncan's actually speaking on a podcast called The History of Byzantium, which I do recommend. Listen to The History of Rome first. Duncan says, Before Constantine and the Council of Nicaea, Christianity is a bottom-up religion of slaves and women and privates in the army sort of the lowest of the low, who are embracing this new religion and philosophy, which is really quite tied, probably, to what Jesus as a person was advocating. And Constantine marries that religion to imperial power, and that transforms Christianity from a grassroots movement to a full-blown power structure. There's an anarcho-communist Jesus. Women privates, slaves, the people at the bottom have come together and formed a community. And this anarcho-communist Jesus gets ripped out of his place in the hierarchy, which is at the bottom. Blessed are the meek and put at the top. Do what Constantine tells you to. So I've mentioned Plato a few times and Greek philosophy let's go there. Because this idea of a single and all-powerful God and the precious keepers of knowledge, who are also the only keepers of power, is older than Constantine. It goes back to Plato. Nietzsche says that Plato is behind it all. He says Christianity is Platonism for the people. This isn't beyond good and evil. If you listen to the first and I did on this podcast, I talked about how in Homer, Zeus is this chaotic, erratic figure who's supposedly in charge, but really just feels like another another force of anarchy. Plato, who's writing a few years, uh, sorry, a few centuries after Homer, says that even though Homer is the founding document of Greek culture, they should stop reading him, or at least reading certain parts of him, because Homer Zeus is so unstable. I would say anarchic. He transforms into lesser forms. He lies. He has sex with humans. He squabbles. And if you want people to be good and follow orders, Plato says, it has to be because they believe that there is something better and more perfect above them. There must be a perfect God. And Zeus is very much not that. Why would you follow orders if your God is Zeus, who never does what he is supposed to do? So Plato invents a sort of perfect version of Zeus, who is totally logical and good and must be true. If you know anything about the conceptions of the Christian God, here he is. It's not Yahweh, it's Plato's Zeus, centuries before Christ. The Zeus of Homer's stories bears basically the same relationship to Plato's Zeus as the Jesus of Nazareth, the anarchist Jesus, bears to the platonic, perfect Jesus. Plato expresses this famously in his Allegory of the Cave. You may have been taught the Allegory of the Cave before. You may have heard it a million times. You may have never heard it. I'm going to run through it briefly. It is the source of the anti-anarchist theory of knowledge that animates Christianity. So this allegory of the cave, the idea is that everyone is chained up and they're chained against a a low wall in a cave or a cave like prison cell, it's not clear. And they're looking at the side of the cave and on the wall behind them, behind them on the wall, there's a road and on the other side of the road, there's a fire. And so people are walking along this road and they can see shadows. The people are carrying things and they can see the shadows on the wall. And since that's all they can see, they can't turn their head, they're like, oh, These are real. These shadows are real. Now, Plato says, imagine one of those people gets free, and they get outside. Eventually, they will see all sorts of things. They will see the real things, not the shadows. Eventually, they'll see the sky, the stars, and the sun. And the sun is not the light of private judgment. It is the light of universal judgment. It is the main thing to see, but you can't even look at it because you can't truly know it. But you know it by seeing it everywhere else, this perfect truth. And this person knows the most anyone can know. But if the person goes back down and tries to tell his chained up friends about the sun, they won't believe them. He's like, these are not, these shadows are not real. To the copy of a copy of a copy. This is fake. I know the real truth. But these stupid numbskulls, you see, these are Father Forbes' numbskulls, will not believe him. They will insist that he is crazy, and they are right. I'm going to quote you some Plato. It's tough. This is the Waterfield translation. We'll we'll see how this goes. If you don't get anything about out of this, just I don't know. Send me a question in the Q and A. I can try and. Unpack it. I'm I'm no Plato expert, though. The region which is accessible to sight should be equated with the prison cell, and the firelight there with the light of the sun. And if you think of the upward journey and the sight of things up on the surface of the earth as the mind's ascent to the intelligible realm, intelligible realm, you won't be wrong. At least, I don't think you'd be wrong, and it's my impression that you want to hear. Only God knows if it's actually true, however. Anyway, it's my opinion that the last thing to be seen, and it isn't easy to see either, in the realm of knowledge is goodness. And the sight of the character of goodness leads one to deduce that it is responsible for everything that is right and fine, whatever the circumstances, and that in the visible realm it is the progenitor of light and of the source of light, and in the intelligible realm it is the source and provider of truth and knowledge. And I also think that the sight of it is a prerequisite for intelligent conduct of either of one's own private affairs or of public business. So he starts off by talking about the region which is intelligible to sight. That stuff you can see? Reality? That's not real. That's just the shadows of the cave. The real stuff happens when your mind goes higher, when you get closer to God. Clearly not Homer, Zeus this perfect, omnipotent, omniscient God that Plato has made up to make this theory work. He says it's just obvious. I've been thinking about it. There is this better God than Zeus. And that sight, he says, the ability to see the deeper truths, not just like believe what you see or believe what you and your friends have talked about and lived in a community, but the The truth that only the highest minds can see is required for intelligent conduct, either of one's own private affairs or of public business. If you want to help run the community, you have to make sure that you ignore everyday life and instead just believe what Plato thinks logic demands that you believe. Conveniently for Plato, philosophers are the smartest people, and thus knew the best good, and thus were the ones who should be conducting public business. But there's a problem. The numbskulls, the people chained below, won't listen. Not only will they not listen, but Plato can teach them the allegory of the cave over and over again, and they just don't get it. They are too dumb, and they keep insisting that they should get to make their own decisions instead of... You know, some philosopher deciding everything for him because he knows he's right. They're like, well, I know I'm right. This is why Nietzsche says Christianity is Platonism for the masses. Let's dumb it down and then people will believe it. Let's replace the ideal realm of forms with heaven. Let's replace the guy who they wouldn't listen to, the guy who saw the truth, with Jesus. Let's add a carrot and a stick. You don't want to listen to the messenger? Then you can go to hell. And if you do listen, you can go to heaven, the perfect place. You think the cave is bad? Wait until there's somewhere where there's not even fire and shadows. That's hell. But if you believe in Jesus, which is to say, if you accept that Plato knows things that you don't know, or the priest knows things that you don't know, and you do what they tell you to, well, then you get to go to heaven. But here's the catch. You are not smart enough to know what Plato knows. You just have to do what the guy in the robe, the priest, tells you to. Otherwise, you will use your private judgment incorrectly, you numbskull. This platonic philosopher and the priest are the same person. What do we call that person? Father. Father Forbes, right? He's got a daddy too. We call that guy the Pope. Pope just means father. It means the big dad. Our father who art our father's father. The representative of our father who art in heaven. The Pope is also called the Patriarch of Rome. It's Dads all the way down. Rule by the Dads, you are a child, you don't know any better. Jesus is the Son. He's the messenger of God, of Dad, who came down to tell you, listen to your earthly father. Maybe Caesar um, doesn't know the truth, but that's okay. There's a Pope there to tell him what to do. You aren't smart enough. You can't read Greek, Latin, Hebrew, whatever. Maybe the Tsar can't either, but the Tsar has a patriarch who can tell him what to do, and then it's your job to listen to that Tsar. Otherwise, you'll mess it up if you go off thinking for yourself. You don't think you know better than the Tsar, do you? Or, you know, the President? It's the same thing in the american system in fact this all comes up for plato because he is against democracy plato thinks that democracy is heading towards anarchy and plato hates anarchy and the way you need to make sure that the system doesn't become unstable is that you have only the best smartest people making decisions but you also have to convince everyone else that they have to listen those people because they are best and smarter. And this has terrified American presidents since the beginning of America. Because the point of America is democratic and liberal, that is to say almost anarchist situation, but it falls apart if people go into full-on anarchy. So you use this platonic idea also. Why do you think all the buildings have columns in Washington, D.C.? The big father of our country, the founding fathers, it's right there again. The big father of our country, Washington, in the 19th century, when they do paintings of him in the Capitol, it's all Roman stuff. It is all this Platonic fathers who know better than you do. It can be Christian or it can be this really weird thing, which we sometimes call the secular American religion. Let's go to Dwight D. Eisenhower. This is something Eisenhower said when he signed the bill adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. From this day forward, the millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city and town, every village and rural schoolhouse the dedication of our nation and our people to the Almighty. To anyone who truly loves America, nothing could be more inspiring than to contemplate this rededication of our youth on each school morning to our country's true meaning. Especially is this meaningful as we regard today's world. Over the globe, mankind has been cruelly torn by violence and brutality and by the millions debted in mind and in soul a materialistic philosophy of life. Man everywhere is appalled by the prospect of atomic war. In this somber setting, this law and its effects today have profound meaning. In this way, we are reaffirming the transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage and future. In this way, we shall constantly strengthen those spiritual weapons, which forever will be our country's most powerful resource in peace or in war." Here's another quote from Eisenhower. In other words, our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. Our form of government has no sense unless there is a religious faith, and I don't care what it is. I take this to mean democracy will slip into anarchy unless you believe there is something bigger than you out there. Some faith, some God, doesn't matter what it is, that will keep you in line. This is the purest platonic expression you can imagine. From the first quote, when he says materialist versus transcendent, well, transcendence is this platonic thing, something behind or beyond. It transcends, it goes above, it supersedes, it floats above, tedious reality. The alternative is materialism. Believing that what matters is the world around you. You dope. You think what matters is the world around you. No, it's something bigger. But you are not qualified to know what that bigger thing is. So just listen to President Eisenhower and pledge allegiance to God. Remember, dialectical materialism is another word for Marxism. This is an attack on the Soviet Union. Those people... Don't believe there's a God in heaven guiding them. And that's why they are murderers. So all you gotta do is believe in this platonic realm of ideals. And (laughs) Eisenhower has taken it so far. It's gone away from being Jesus. Now it's just pure Plato. I don't care what it is. As long as you acknowledge it's bigger than you, you don't know what it is, and it's somebody else's job to figure out what it means. Now we're back where we started jesus who is the christ who is the son who is the light through which all things see who is also the platonic ideal who is also america or the constitution or sometimes christ and the constitution muddled together that's something we do in america put under god in the pledge the important thing is you don't know what it is hand it over to the priests or somebody else wearing a robe like the supreme court Don't you see when we get confused and we don't know the truth about the word and we need someone to read the sacred scripture? We go to the person in the robe. Okay, we have nine of them and the robes are black. That's pretty much the only difference between the Supreme Court and the Pope. The Pope has the same relationship to the emperor as the Supreme Court has to the president. The knower in the fancy robe who tells the people This is why you have to do what the president says. And you know, when I got my PhD, I wore a robe like that also. The robe means back off. You are a numbskull. Only the person in the robe can interpret what's going on. The story of Jesus, as we know it from the Bible, is the story of him not listening to the people in the robes. And the story of him demanding, that everyone get to make their own private judgments, that the people can take back the temple. The villain, well, there's two villains in the Jesus story. One is all the people in the robes, the Pharisees and the priests in the temple, and two is the imperialist Romans. That's Jesus of Nazareth. The other guy is a lie concocted to prevent you from realizing that christ is made up borrowed from plato and jesus of nazareth wasn't a narco communist so next time jesus of nazareth part two jesus of nazareth the actual jesus in the meantime please send me your questions about this episode to everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, the website is now up, everydayanarchism.com, where you can find links to all the episodes of the show, a place to sign up for my newsletter, Anarchist Hot Takes. And if you want to and you are able, you can support the show financially. All that's left is for me to remind you that the theme music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.